Welcome to Live Free Church. We're a church that's passionate about reaching people at all costs. Here you can find all our recent sermons. We are so glad you joined us today. We want people to live free lives ultimately found in Jesus because we believe that free people, free people. Hey, welcome to Live Free Church. I'm Colby. Um, and we're spending the next year in the Gospel of Mark. Maybe you've never read a book of the Bible. Um, this is the first book I read. Um, actually, the, the first book I tried to read as a brand new Christian way back in grade 10 was Romans. And someone said, you should read Romans. It's going to be so great. And I read Romans. I was like, I don't understand any of this. And someone said, actually, no, no. Just go and read the Gospel of Mark. And I went and I read the Gospel of Mark, his eyewitness account of John Mark. And it changed me. It transformed me of of confronting the real, authentic Jesus in my life changed me. And maybe for you, it asks the question for, we look at Jesus, the, the most important person in human history, it makes us ask the question, is what was the first time you were introduced to Jesus? I can tell you for me that the first time I was introduced to Jesus as a little kid was this really famous TV show. You might have heard of it. I know it was really deep thoughts in it called The Simpsons. Like, that's the first time I, I was introduced to church in Jesus. The first Christian I ever met was Ned Flanders, because he lived next door to Homer Simpson. I don't know about you, but for all of us, we've encountered Jesus at some point. Maybe it's through a TV show like The Simpsons or Family Guy or South Park. Or maybe it's through The Chosen or The Passion of the Christ. That for all of us, we have encountered persona of Jesus. But it makes us wonder, who was Jesus like? Who was he? What was his life like? That we're going to spend the next year in the Gospel of Mark exploring who Jesus was. The Gospel of Mark is the first written account that we have of the life of Jesus. See, why did Mark write the life of Jesus down? Well, for that matter, why did Matthew Luke and John do the same thing because for roughly about 30 years or so after the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus, there were no written accounts. See, the gospel of Jesus, the message of Jesus was spread orally, verbally, year after year after year. And this is for us a really weird concept, isn't that? Like, if you want information, where do you go? You go to Google, Right? That actually a lot of our source of information, unfortunately, comes through Facebook or Instagram or TikTok. That, that's where we find information. But in this culture, it was orally spread. It was verbally spread. You might think that's really sketchy. Like You think like, maybe someone could, could distort or change who Jesus was. I remember this person I, I knew in my life said, well, I don't know if I believe in this account because there's accounts like it in history. Couldn't someone distort that? Couldn't someone distort the character of Jesus? For example, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is writing to a church in Corinth. About 20 years after the death of Jesus, he's writing to the church, and he's really talking about the resurrection, that Jesus rose from the dead. He's talking about what that means and how it happened. And what he says to this church he says, hey, actually, here's all these people. I'll explain it to you. If you don't believe me, here's, 
this person who saw it. Here's this person. Here's this person. He's listing them by name, but then he actually steps out and says, actually, no, there's like 500 people who saw the risen Christ. Go and talk to them. Go talk to the people who actually encountered Jesus. He said, most of them are still alive. If you want to go ask them, they're there. In other words, Paul's saying is that within the first two or three decades after the life of Jesus, it was very difficult for someone to distort the image of Christ, to distort the character of Christ, because those eyewitnesses were always verifying what happened. They said, I don't know about that. I was there. I saw Jesus. You know, for example, someone couldn't say, you know, because Jesus was so divine that, that after he did a miraculous thing, he levitated or floated somewhere else. He did a miraculous thing there and floated somewhere else. They couldn't say that because there was eyewitness accounts to verify it. Some would say, well, actually, no, I lived there and I saw that. I saw that person who was blind healed. I saw that leper be healed. I saw Jesus feed the 5,000. I saw these things because I was there. You see, the eyewitnesses verified what Jesus did. It was hard for people to distort the reality of what he was. But one generation after the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, when the apostles were starting to die off and the eyewitnesses were starting to die off, there arose a danger that someone could distort who Jesus was. They could make up a Jesus of their own. They could lose touch with the real Jesus. And therefore, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the gospel writers, began to pull together all the eyewitness accounts and they, they turned them into the life of Jesus. These are the gospels we have in the beginning of the New Testament. So what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John really did was they took these eyewitness accounts and they wove them together so we'd have the real, authentic Jesus. Not a Jesus we distort and make up, not a Jesus of our own, but the real Jesus as he actually was, what he actually said, what he really did. I think that in 2021 that we need that desperately today. I think that we have perceptions of who Jesus is, that we've portrayed him to a culture, we've watered him down, we've toned him down, we've sterilized him a little bit. A.W. Tozer, this famous theologian, says that what we think about God is the most important thing about us. Let me repeat that one more time. That what we think about God is the most important thing about us. See, there's been an explosion in the last couple of years of people becoming deeply spiritual and being interested in who Jesus is, but redefining him on their own terms. There's more and more books out when you go to Indigo, when you go to bookstores, and you see that the people are actually re-narrating who Jesus is in their own lives through their own cultural context. That it really matters what we believe and think about God. Because so often it shows what we worship, what we value, what we're trying to become. John Mark Comer in his book, he was talking about this idea in one of his books about, about what we believe about God really matters. And what he says here is that if you believe that God is an angry judge, what happens is you become an angry person at everyone's sin. 
If you believe God's just a life coach, what happens is you view God as someone helping you live your best life. If you believe that God's anti-whatever, you'll become anti-whatever. Because when we think about God, matters. He chose what we worship, what we value. The New Testament professor, Scott McKnight, was doing this in his class where he, in his very first class, would, would give a, a poll to students on what they believe. They believe about politics, social issues. And the second quiz he gave them was what they believe that Jesus thought about those exact same issues. And what he said was that 96% of the time, their views, what they believe that Jesus' views were, were exactly the opposite. See, what it shows us is that so often that we want to bend Jesus to be just like us, to justify our own lives, our own sinful patterns, our own desires and thoughts, that we actually are just trying to bend Jesus into things that we worship because maybe we don't know the real, authentic Jesus. But here's the irony of this, about us bending Jesus to our own will. Is a Jesus you shape, a Jesus you make up, that fits with your desires, is a Jesus you cannot, the Jesus that cannot change you. He can't really transform you because a Jesus you make up can't challenge you, can't contradict you. Why? Because you made him up. He's just you. So the irony is that when, is that a Jesus you create, that doesn't have his own reality, can't really change or renew or transform you. If you want Jesus, if you want Jesus who can really help you, who can really spiritually change you and transform you, you have to get the real authentic Jesus. And that's in the Gospel of Mark, I believe, in fact, that I have to say this very carefully, that in some ways Mark of the four Gospels is the best place to go get the unfiltered, raw, straight-up Jesus. Because all of the Gospels are longer. Mark is the shortest. Mark is constantly saying, Jesus immediately did this. He immediately went here. He did this thing. All the Gospels are a lot longer because they talk more about Jesus and his life. For example, you look at Mark versus all the Gospels. Matthew starts with the genealogy. Who is Jesus? What are his roots? What are his family? Luke starts with Elizabeth and Mary and Joseph. The Gospel of John starts this big picture of the creation of the world. He's like this philosopher, this big picture thinker. But Mark, in his Gospel, starts in the very beginning, and boom, this goes right to Jesus. You know, there, you don't have very much commentary in Mark's Gospel about Jesus. You actually have his, his character, his actions, and that's why I think Kelowna desperately needs this book this eyewitness account of Jesus' life in 2021. It's a, a gospel that's written to us to show us, to give us a Jesus who can change lives, who can change your life, who can change my life. We're going to look at the gospel of Mark for the next year, and I hope and pray that 
that the goal for us is to encounter the real, authentic Jesus. To not bend Jesus to our will, but to be transformed and changed by him. I'd love for us to read in Mark chapter 1 today, verse 1 to 8. It'll be on the screen. If your Bibles, you can open them. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. It says here, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as is written in Isaiah the prophet, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He'll prepare your way. A voice of one calling out in the desert, crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. John came baptizing in the name of the, in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing all their sins. John wore a camel-haired garment and a leather belt around his waist. He ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, The one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I'm not worthy to stoop down and tie the straps of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. See, I want to talk about two things today that Mark is kind of getting at in the very beginning of his, of his eyewitness account, his gospel. What he's saying here is that there's a king and there's a kingdom. That's what he's looking at. He's looking at the king and the kingdom of Christ. He starts right away. He doesn't really mix up words. doesn't mince the words. What he says here is that who Jesus really is. The beginning of the gospel, it's about Jesus. Who is he? And he says it so clearly. He's the Christ. Well, I think for us, that when you look at Jesus in Christ, right, we, just, we don't differentiate those words. For you and I, they're the same thing, Right? Don't we believe that? It's like something we've heard a thousand times. It's like hearing happy birthday, right? Like if someone hums in a room, we all know what that means, that song is. But not originally, because Christ, but Jesus was the man's name, but Christ, Christos, meant the anointed king. See, Jesus, according to Mark, the real Jesus is the king. You say, what does that really mean? Well, it kind of moves on in, in chapter two and three, or sorry, verse two and three in Mark's gospel, and it kind of unpacks what that king looks like. And in that context, in the, in the Jewish context, they would have understood this. And it says here in, in verse two and three, it says here, it was written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who'll prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. See, this is a, a bombshell in that context. In Isaiah 40, if you go back and read through Isaiah's prophecy, what he's trying to say here is that someday the Lord himself will come to Jerusalem. See, so you go back and read Isaiah 40, its entirety, and it says here, Someday the Lord himself will come to Jerusalem and show the nations his glory, and a messenger will call out and prepare the way for him. That's the prophecy. That's what someone's talking about that's going to bring forth, prepare the way for the Lord. 
for Jesus, the King. See, we look back and you read this, this Hebrew passage in Isaiah. The word translated in the English Bible, Lord, is the word Yahweh. It's the personal covenantal name that God revealed to himself, to Moses in the burning bush. It's the personal name of the covenant God that Jews consider so holy that they wouldn't even write his name out down or speak his name. It's almost like if you read through the, the Harry Potter books, it's like Voldemort, they wouldn't speak of his name because there was so much reverence. But this is for Yahweh that the Jews would never, the Jewish people would never speak or write his name down. Mark is saying in the first couple verses, is there's a king, his name's Jesus. He's saying that the Yahweh of Israel, the creator God of the universe, rightful ruler and judge of all the earth, has come to earth in the form of Jesus. And he's the king. Every religion is so that God is out there with the reach out to get him. We have to do something to get him. But what Mark is saying here is that God came here, that the Lord, the God of the Old Testament, of the God of Abraham, of Moses, of Joseph, came near. That Yahweh is here in Jesus. It makes you realize that for us, that, that everyone has something in their life that is king. That everyone has a king in their life. You boil it down, it might be money, it might be power, it might be sex. Usually these things rule over us. That we often have fear attached to these things. That if we lost these things, that we made the ultimate in our life. That we'd have nothing. We'd have no purpose. So you see when people lose something, the death of a loved one or a child, or the loss of a job, people have nothing. Because those things have become the most important things in their lives. Jesus shows us that he's come to change that. We don't have to reach up to him, that he reaches down to us to give us life, not full of fear, but of love. A life full of joy. A life full of peace instead of anxiety. A life full of grace instead of religion. A life full of the real Jesus. See, first you have the king who came near. The king who came here. Jesus. But now you have his kingdom. See, where does the kingdom go? Where does the king go? Right? Where does he go in the first couple of verses in the very beginning of Mark's narrative? The gospel. Right, when you think about a kingdom, my kids and I were talking about this the other day, and my, my kid was asking, he's like, you know, can the queen go anywhere? I said, yeah, probably the queen could go anywhere. I said, well, could the queen come into our house? I said, well, if the queen probably showed up, you know, with her Rolls Royce uh, in the front of her house, we'd probably let her in. I wouldn't be like, hey, beat it, get out of here. Like, I would say, hey, come on in, I'll maybe serve you some tea. I have the finest stash tea in all the land, right? But he said, what about their house? Could we go to their place? I said, no, we could never go to their palace, their pristine place, because that's their kingdom. I remember when I was 
in Rome years and years and years ago. I walked up the dome to see like all the Vatican residents. And I was like, wow, this is so ornate and beautiful and pristine. It's like Disneyland steroids. This is their kingdom. We think about Jesus, the king, and where he goes. It's not where we expect. It says he goes out into the wilderness. What it's saying here is that you can meet the king in the wilderness. The whole theme of this chapter, we're talking about this a little bit more next week, is that in order to find this king, you obviously sometimes need to go into the wilderness to encounter God, to be changed. The people were going out to be baptized in the wilderness. The Jews goes out into the wilderness. But it makes you think about the context of the wilderness for us, that when you and I think of a wilderness, I think of like going out into the woods. Then we're going into the woods with Dave to fish. Like that's going out into the, the wilderness. But there's, there's sustenance there. Like I could fish for food. I can catch a fish and eat it. Dave could cook it up for us. We have trees as canopies to shield us from rain. Maybe we can get some wood and have a fire. But see, the wilderness here really means desert. There's nothing there. There's no life there. There's thorns and thistles. Nothing grows. There's a terrible thirst. There's a terrible loneliness. It cannot support life. That's what the desert was like. It's important about John the Baptist preaching the wilderness. And it's interesting they had to go out into the wilderness to be baptized. Is because one of the themes of the Bible, you might not be aware of this, is that in general you meet God in the wilderness. In the history of Israel, they met God in the wilderness. Think about Moses, Abraham, Joseph. They all met God in the wilderness. Think about this past year. This past year and a half. Like we've all been affected in so many different ways. Like we were planting a church a year ago in March for Easter Sunday 2020. I've been waiting since I was 22 years old to plant a church in Kelowna. We did one practice service, we were to launch, and all of a sudden everything got shut down because this, this pandemic happened. I remember people saying to me week in, week out after that, what is it like to, to start a church up in a pandemic? And I was like, it's awful. Let me actually, sorry, I thought that. But on the outside, I was like, you know what? I smile and be like, it's, it's pretty good. It's pretty great. You know, God's got this and he does. But deep down, I felt like I entered into the desert of my life. There was an intense loneliness. There was an intense thirst. I did not want to be in a room speaking to a camera. I want to be in a room full of people I loved, launching a church in the Cologne to reach unchurched people, people who need Jesus so desperately. For me, it looked like death. It looked like grief, loss. See, maybe as you're coming out of a pandemic, 
You're coming out with a strained relationship, a difficult work environment, internal despair, anxiety. See, when we end up in the wilderness of life, we realize that Jesus went to the wilderness so we can find God. That we won't always be defined by the wilderness, the desert of our life. But in the desert, we can find the true king. It might not change your finances, your marriage, or your job, but you'll find Jesus, truly, the real, authentic Jesus. Because everything else that you've surrounded your life with in the desert gets stripped away because there's no way for those things to survive any longer. See, you will find in the desert life if you look to Jesus. If you only look to Jesus. What does it look like for us to find a king in his kingdom? It looks like John Stott in his little book, Basic Christianity, which I recommend you go read it. It's amazing. But he says people in the Gospels really reacted in one of three extreme ways. Extreme ways, he said. The first one is you hated him. Try to wipe him out. The second way is you're scared to death of him. You try to get as far away as possible. And the third way is you knelt at his feet and you lay your kingdom down for his. I don't know where you're at on one of those three things. But the last year and a half, if I'm going to be super honest, I've started a church in a pandemic. I've had other issues that just have surfaced in my life. I was scared to death of him. I tried to get away as far as possible from him, that I ran away out into a desert only to find him. only to kneel at his feet and say, Jesus, it's your kingdom, not mine. You see, there's only one of three extreme responses to Jesus, which are very rational and real. You hate him, you're scared of him, or you worship him. No one ever said to Jesus in the Gospels, good job, Jesus. Good sermon. Good meal. They never said those things, but we say those things all the time, don't we? That was a good sermon today. Um, that was a good message. What we're trying to say is, actually, I don't know what I believe about Jesus. I don't know if I have any feelings about Jesus. I don't know if I feel like I hate him, I'm scared of him, or if I worship him. See, the C.S. Lewis famously says the opposite of love is in hatred. It's actually indifference. Their culture is so indifferent to the person of Jesus because we don't know the person of Jesus anymore. But I pray that our church that people in Cologne over the next year as we look through the Gospel of Mark would have extreme reactions to Jesus. Extreme reactions of who he really is. But it gets us wondering, how do we respond to this kingdom? This kingdom? I pray this year it would look like these things. That one, we'd want to be with Jesus. That we'd actually want to read through the Gospel of Mark multiple times. I'd love for a church to read through the Gospel of Mark once a month for the next 12 months. That we'd be challenged by the things he said, the things he did, his actions, his character. That we'd wrestle with that and go, why did he do that? 
But because we'd wrestle with that, it'd make us become like him. We'd become like Jesus. That we love our enemies. The last thing is that we do what he did. There'd be a people that would love Kelowna so radically as Jesus loves people all around him. That we bring to a city that's hurting, hurting and broken a real king. Not a Jesus that is impersonated or personified by Simpsons or the Family Guy or South Park or whatever it is, but we'd actually bring the real, authentic, raw, unfiltered Jesus in the Gospel of Mark to a city that desperately needs Jesus. A king. We bring his kingdom to earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. God, I thank you for today. I thank you for how you're guiding and directing us. I pray, Lord, that we would desire you to be king of our life. That some of us, I don't know where they're at in their life, but I think that they're angry at you or scared of you. But Lord, I pray we'd worship you. Pray that we'd say today that we want to worship you. I want to worship you with my whole life. That I am in the desert of my life, but there you are. That you won't change my desert, the loneliness and the dry land that I'm in, but Lord, that I would find you ultimately, you bring me through it. Father, I thank you that you're there. You never leave us or abandon us or forsake us. That you, that you know us, that you love us, and you're always pursuing us, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening today. Please subscribe to our podcast. Share with your friends. We would love for you to join our movement. All you have to do is go to livefree.church to join us.